Patrick Goggin, what a pleasure and an honor to have you on Hemp Barons. Thank you so much for being with us today. It is my pleasure, Joy. I've been looking forward to this moment for a while. Yay, me too, brother. What a hemp hero. I mean, this plant has been through such a journey since the first law surrounding it in 1619, <laughs> ordering farmers to make trial of the Indian hemp seed, all the way through being completely barred with hysterical prohibition to now reemerging in the broad light of day. And it is lawyers and the law who have in so many ways been our champions since 1970 and the Controlled Substances Act. But you, sir, you first and foremost um, have really been the pioneer and the hemp hero with a law degree and a license that has been carrying this ball and marching hemp down the field uh, since 2000, really since the turn um, of the millennium. Really that first lawsuit, and, and I'm going to just frame this up, brother, and you'll, you'll correct, or if I've gotten ahead of my skis, you will please correct anything I may misspeak on. You know, Jack Herrer uh, wrote that very first uh, iteration of Emperor Wears New Clothes. It came up in a in an almost newspaper format, then printed in a real book uh, format in 1988, uh, and that spurred this resurgence of the of the hemp industries. And by night, by the mid 90s or so man, we started to gain a little bit of traction here in the United States, particularly thanks to stakeholders such as uh, David Bronner and Dr. Bronner Soaps, John Rulak with Nutiva, who started to add for Dr. Bronner's hemp seed oil into uh, Dr. Bronner's soaps, Castile soaps, and John Rulak, who started to import uh, hulled hemp seeds and the like to sell for its nutritional profile, its uh, omega, omega profile and proteins. And as we started to gain some traction, we started to gain some attention from the Drug Enforcement Administration. Uh, and then right around 2000, actually, I think you could tell me, October 2001, an interesting uh, rule was filed, um, and that was an interim rule, I believe. Again, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that would seek to declare uh, just arbitrarily that the exempt parts of the plant, such as seeds that are not capable of germination, um, would be uh, considered to be controlled substances. Thereby, if they were to get away with it, the Drug Enforcement Administration would, would have stymied and completely stifled uh, the tremendous progress uh, that we had made. And, and that was a controlled substances if made for human consumption. May you please now elaborate what happened uh, with that case, which we know we refer to these cases as HIA versus DEA. They are also known as hemp one, two, three, and four, because DEA has been had to sue, be sued four times and you've been there for all of them. So, Joy, you've done a really good job in, in laying uh, the table for this, setting the table. Um, but there's one piece of uh, activity that occurred before that, and that was a memo that was sent from the Office of National Drug Control Policy under the Clinton administration to the DEA. And what it essentially said was that hemp is a stocking horse for marijuana. It will pave the way for marijuana, therefore, and we need to do something about that. We believe that 
since there is some natural uh, amounts, negligible natural trace amounts of THC in, in those foods, that hemp foods that are being on the market, we want you to declare them illegal. And so at the ONDCP's behest, they issued, as you're, you uh, aptly um, indicated, a, an interpretive rule and then a proposed rule. Both of those were challenged. Hemp one challenged the interpretive rule and hemp two challenged the proposed rule. And in both of those cases, we were successful in getting a temporary restraining order. Therefore, by, by obtaining the TRO, we were able to show that there was a substantial likelihood of prevailing on the merits. And why did we prevail or why was there a substantial likelihood for, for, for prevailing is because the DEA just did not follow the proper procedures. They, they claimed that was an interpretive rule, but essentially it made illegal the following day items that just were not illegal. And, and accordingly, the court found that that was a proposed rule that required at least notice and comment. Of course, they did that at the same time. And so we had to challenge the proposed rule. And ultimately, um, we argued in that case that what the DEA was essentially doing was adding a substance to the Controlled Substance Act list because THC at the time and today is separately on, on, the, uh, on the list. And it clearly had indicated that it was the synthetic version of THC that was on the list. So therefore, what were they doing? They were adding natural THC to the list. and that requires a uh, scheduling action. And they did, so proposed rules were not enough. Um, they didn't do a scheduling action. The, both rules were invalidated. Importantly, importantly, um, the court coined for the first time in American jurisprudence in, in hemp two, non-psychoactive hemp. It validated it, it legitimized it, and that would be really, I believe, the legal event, earthquake cataclysmic event that paved the way for the evolution of the whole CBD space and what was going on in the various states for allowing uh, for production and then ultimately the 2014 and the 2018 farm bills. Oh man, indeed. And that hemp one and hemp two took from 2001 to 2004. So uh, thank you 10 million times over for that. And, and it's true. Uh, and I love um, the, basically the quote from that order, the Ninth Circuit order, which is Congress was aware of the presence of trace amounts of psychoactive agents later identified as THC in the resin of non-psychoactive hemp when it passed the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act and when it adopted the Tax Act marijuana definition in the Controlled Substances Act. As a result, I'm continuing to, to uh, quote the court's order here in Hemp 2. As a result, when Congress excluded from the definition of marijuana 
the mature stalks of such plant, fiber, oil, or cake made from the seeds. It also made an exception to the exception and included resin extracted from the accepted parts of the plant in the definition of marijuana, despite the stalks and seeds exception. Now, that was probably a little too much for our listeners, um, but indeed, that non-psychoactive hemp was for sure the legal event, and maybe also a little bit about naturally occurring. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, well... It gets complicated when you start referencing the language from 1937 because it's only referring to the res it's referring to the resin by way of trying to reference the THC. The challenge there becomes, well, what about the rest of the cannabinoids? Right. And did they did they intend to address the uh, prohibit the rest of the cannabinoids? And Ultimately, and clearly what the courts have been concerned with are the intoxicating uh, cannabinoid THC and its analogs. But in terms of natural THC, what, what the courts were saying is, is that you know, any negligible trace amounts of THC or resin that, are, that, are, that just so happen to uh, get onto the products by virtue of the cleaning process and, and the agronomy and the processing and so forth, well, then that's negligible. That was anticipated and it's allowed. It's the source. Ultimately, it's the source rule. Does, does that part of the plant come from a marijuana plant or does it come from a hemp plant? That was ultimately uh, pegged at less than 0.3% for, again, randomly, uh, not based in science purposes. But there you have it. We now have hemp defined, at least right now, in the United States as less than 0.3%. That's hemp. Anything above it right now is, is cannabis or marijuana. Um, I'll just refer to it as marijuana in this case, because it's confusing when we start referring to marijuana as cannabis, even though it's all cannabis. But yeah, that's where we're at. And, you know, we can move on to the next question. Yeah, no, it's just, it's fascinating. So despite winning twice, as I like to say, against the DEA or the Clinton administration, as it were, um, despite that, and despite getting those orders, we still have, and and, uh, and just to explain a little bit of a, a, a tiny story here to share with the listeners. So bear in mind, 2014 Farm Bill rolls along. Patrick has won this case for the stakeholders and the industry years, but 10 years before got the order. Bump it up 10 years. 2014 Farm Bill passes. Uh, different jurisdictions here in Washington state where I live took us another two years to legalize uh, hemp for cultivation here in the state of Washington. So counterintuitive because we already had 10 million square feet of, of marijuana canopy growing and still didn't have a legal hemp program, but I digress. Um, then what happens is state departments of ag, as these agricultural pilot programs begin to be taken on by the various states, because their state legislatures are taking advantage of this new freedom offered to it by the feds um, to begin to create these promulgate rules for these agricultural pilot programs. And we've got these state departments of ag, um, you know, excited to do their job. But like anybody else, they're kind of Googling. They don't have a bunch of experts to talk to. 
Um, and it, those of us like you who have tried to make ourselves available to them, of course, but they're Googling. And so they're Googling things like, hey, is hemp seed legal? Uh, for, is hemp grain legal for human consumption? And I would get calls from at least two different states, one of them being Washington, saying, Joy, I'm not quite sure. Do you know anything about this? We just Googled, you know, is hemp grain legal? And we got this October 4th, 2001 press release was the first result a, a press release that at this point, and, and now I'm talking 2016. So at, at that point, this press release was 15 years old. And it's the first result that the Washington State Department of Ag is getting is that absolutely no, no, no. Hemp grain is certainly not legal. In fact, it's a controlled schedule one substance. And multiple people are getting that as a search result that no hemp grain is a schedule one substance. And from there, I think you know what I'm getting at, brother, where we move on to hemp three and I'm I'm going to let you take it from there. Well, actually, yeah. I mean, hemp, hemp three comes at a, at a similar time. Well, let me take a step back. In December, I believe, 2016, the DEA issues a new rule that, that had supposedly been proposed. I guess it was proposed like six years prior September and, uh, 2011 is when it had been proposed. It sat there for five years. So it sat there for five years. And then magically, December 2016, they decide uh, to issue the rule based on notice that was provided six years before. Uh, we, I've never seen that in, in, in my experience. However, we were, we were researching it and come to find out that we did see these press releases were still up. They hadn't changed um, the THC listing. So simultaneously with bringing hemp three, we bring a motion for contempt against the DEA for violating the court order. And that wound up resulting in a settlement agreement whereby the DEA was required to issue a letter that we helped to fashion that properly provided guidance to agencies, federal agencies, as well as states on just what is the reality around hemp and to stop that misinformation. What was also happening was that customs was being directed by DEA to test any hemp material coming in from uh, out of from overseas, and if it tested positive for the presence of any quantity of THC, it was to be seized. And that was a violation of the order. And we got that retracted and changed to, well, we got some somewhat vague language, but that that wasn't the only basis upon which um, materials could be seized. So that was big. And there are a couple of there before we move on to hemp three, there are just a couple of things that I want to say about one and two. Number one, we got our attorney's fees paid for by the DEA. That does not happen. You know, I have been in, I've been advised by a lot of uh, uh, APA, um, uh, the uh, Administrative Procedures Act attorneys that like that, that are at the, that's really at the heart of a lot of these uh, challenges and that that the DEA just doesn't lose and that 
that our series of um, victories is historic. And I think that that's pretty cool and, and, and something to, for us to hang our hats on. Most definitely, brother, most definitely. And I just wanted to quickly interject here that that rule that you're discussing, of course, was the marijuana extract rule. Yes. And it was and and it basically came out, of course, about four months after the uh, what did we call? I can't believe after, I'm so glad that it's dead and gone. It was the, uh, the DEA in August of 2016 presumably, or they, they motioned or positioned that they had done this in conjunction with the FDA and the USDA, but basically their, their thoughts and their interpretation of the 2014 Farm Bill, at which point they, the DEA had decided they were just going to pat the U.S. Congress legislature on its head and say, gee, we know what you think you meant when you made this historical definition for industrial hemp in the 2014 Farm Bill. But what you really meant was this definition. Um, and as I often say, by the way, under the 2014 Farm Bill, the definition of, of industrial hemp, which was the first time ever, of course, that we created that definition and thereby distinguishing it from other forms of cannabis for the first time in U.S. history. And it was super simple, right? It was any part of the, the plant cannabis sativa L and any part of such plant, whether growing or not, that does not contain greater than 0.3% delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol on a dry weight basis. So you could say you could take that hemp plant and hand it to a four-year-old and say, hey, four-year-old, you can play with any part of this plant. What part can't you play with? And the four-year-old would say, I can play with it all. You just told me I can play with any part. And we would say, you are completely right, four-year-old. Here, DEA agent, you can play with any part of this plant. What part can't you play with? And the DE agent would say, well, the flowering tops and the leaves and the resin, of course. And you'd sit there and go, wait a second. It's plain as day. The four-year-old gets the definition, but you don't. So not only did, they, did their statement on the implementation, on their interpretation of the 2014 Farm Bill contradict and contrast legislative intent, which was surely to liberate any part of the hemp plant. But then in this December of 2016, they dig up, as you say, this dormant five-year proposed rule to define marijuana extract, and they completely ignore the fact that there exists this historical new definition for industrial hemp. And so they basically say marijuana extract means basically any cannabinoid. We don't mm -hmm. care if it comes from a cannabis plant that has not greater than 0.3% THC or it has more than 0.3% THC. We don't care if it's coming from the resin, it's a marijuana extract. And so uh, that. That, of course, is what brought Hemp 3. And it sounds to me like during Hemp 3 is when you discovered, geez, we got it. We And I loved, by the way, what it was titled, that contempt. As you probably well aware, all these years later, when you realize you've got to beat the DEA up again because they've still got that press release up, it was, what was it called? It was motion for order to show cause as to why the Drug Enforcement Administration should not be held in temp for violating this court's prior order. Exactly. And then ultimately, so, so we got, so we got that resolved. That was significant because how often do you get the DEA, you know, you know, direct the DEA to 
issue clarifying letters to their sister agencies. And they had to pull down that press release, right? You got them to pull down. The- and they pulled they pulled down the, the press release. But on in in Hemp three, there was it was it was a split decision in that case. The court found that the petitioners um, did not have proper standing because they themselves didn't comment on the original version of the rule. And, and, and that, that's very nuanced. And we felt like we had some pretty, pretty strong arguments in our favor. And, and, and we would have probably appealed. However, inside of that decision, they addressed the changing circumstances of the passage of the farm bill. And what they said was that Congress already de- decided this, and they they have said and indicated that if a material is produced lawfully under the farm bill, then that is not marijuana. It's an exception, and therefore it is not covered by this rule. So, so in a sense, it was a victory, but a lot of folks see it as like, Oh well, it was denied. And I'm like, well, you gotta just, you just gotta read the whole thing. That page four, you, I got a big old highlighted circle on that page four of that memorandum, brother. And you know, and I, as you may remember, I was there for those oral arguments. I mean, it was fascinating to me. And you did just such an outstanding job. The legal team did just such an outstanding job uh, with all of the briefing, with those oral arguments. And um, and you could tell that there was a little bit of just, just some punting. You know, I have a lot of faith in the Ninth Circuit. Clearly, they've been kind to the industry before, but there was some, some complexity there. But the reality is exactly as you say, Basically, the memorandum said, hey, you know what? You're right. Under the four corners of the farm bill, this extract stuff is actually legal. And that that part was so missed. And can we talk before we move on a little bit about an an incredible thing that occurred? And that is the amicus brief uh, that was filed on behalf of plaintiffs by Congress. Anything you want to talk about that? Which, Which, by the way, we can say all day and all night, listeners, to the court, Listen, this was the congressional intent. We know this was the congressional intent, but until they hear it from Congress themselves, all they've got is our word for it. So with that, Patrick, anything you want to say about that? Yeah, they 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 called out the DEA. They said the DEA was um, rewriting their legislation. The, the DEA is attempting to put putting barriers around what activity, commercial activity could occur under the 2014 Farm Bill, um, citing the fact that it was a research, just a research bill. And they made very clear that part of that research was for the markets and on the markets. And how can you have research the markets and the effect of a commodity on the markets if you're not allowing for sale? It was, it, it, you know, it boggles the mind. But ultimately, what this comes back to is, what is DEA doing altogether? Like, like, what's the, this is clearly a pattern of behavior. And so, so I think what, you know, what, what the most pertinent question is, is why? Why is the DEA so focused on spending so many, so much resources on delegitimizing 
something that's been legitimized by Congress, both in 1937 and in 1970 and again in 2014 and 2016. I mean, it's been, it's been, or 2018, it's been constant. And what it is and what we're pretty darn sure it is all about is budget relevancy. I got to prove, justify my existence. And when I'm not feeling as gracious as to say that, which may or may not be seen as gracious, I usually say the DEA is addicted to prohibition. The DEA are prohibition junkies. They're, 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 they're prohibition junkies. And on the back end, God knows what they're up to. But it just is not okay. And I myself feel pretty good about being part of the effort to stand up and tell the DEA to go take a hike. And, you know, we've been, we've been successful at it, but, but this, I mean, you know, I am, you know, part of the tip of the spear and I represent thousands of people or, or actually I feel like I represent the planet on this mission. You do. You absolutely do. You certainly represent the emerging hemp industries and the planet. But but there were important figures that were by my side and helping to lead the way. Joe Sandler, Donnie Wirtshafter, David Frankel, David Bronner, Steve Levine, Eric Steenstra. I mean, all of these people, uh, Joe Hickey, um, John Rulak, as you mentioned Ruth. before. I mean, these Ruth Shemai. Ruth, Ruth. I love Ruth. Me too. She is the she is the best. Continuing to have her heels dug in in Canada, doing the good work. Um, I mean, like I just want to like Bob Hoban, Garrett Graff, all of these people. These are all my brethren, my sisters, my colleagues, and and I'm I'm just a part of that team. I just want to, I just want to, you know, there's a lot of ego in, in the cannabis space in general, and I have learned and to, to have an ego, but to have a balanced ego. And, and, and we all, we all really need to practice recognition of others and their hard work. You are telling me, in fact, I, I often, I literally just am, am trained to repel and people, they, it's amazing. And I appreciate, I appreciate the well-intended thought of wanting to uplift and say, it's because of joy. And I just cringe. And I always, it's because of an army of activists, not because of joy. Are you kidding me? You know, it's an army of lawyers and, and absolutely amen, brother. And with that, let's bring it up to, and there were some sub issues that I want to discuss, but let's talk about the current uh, case and as we know, the the farm bill, the 2018 farm bill, had various hemp provisions. They take out about uh, they take up somewhere around approximately 30 pages of the farm bill, which I think was somewhere around 840 pages in its final version. In that 840 or so pages, the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, wasn't mentioned a single time. Nary a time, it wasn't mentioned once. No, it, it was. It was mentioned once, and that was that they don't have jurisdiction. <laughs> I'm sorry. Exactly. Literally, that's the punchline. Thank you, brother. The one time it was mentioned, it was like, you you don't have a place here. Yet, 
The USDA interim final rule, that first iteration of it, mentioned them 42 times. And you're sitting there going, wow, they were only mentioned that once in a, in a negative vacuum way, but you're mentioning them 42 times. Um, so please bring us up to what hath occurred uh, with the most current suit, which is hemp four against the DEA. Well, I mean, and, and, and that the reason why the DEA is mentioned 42 times in that initial IFR is because the heat the DEA is bringing behind the scenes. The USDA has no reason to be bringing them up if they're not breathing down their necks. Um, last August, August of 2020, well, we were all really just mired in the pandemic and, and really just dealing with you know, a black, the black swan event of our lifetime and perhaps the next lifetime, um, the DEA was back at it, uh, issuing an interpretive rule that says, we, I would call it the um, in-process hemp rule and, and synthetic rule. And that is, number one, at any point during the process of extracting oil and cannabinoids from hemp material, if at any point that rises above 0.3%, then it's automatically classified as marijuana, notwithstanding the fact that almost any hemp extract is going to rise above that 0.3%. There are ways to do it uh, that it doesn't, but that's the exception. Extraction is germane to concentration whether it's pesticides, heavy metals, the good stuff, or the psychoactive stuff. So we, we looked at that and said, my God, we have to challenge this again. You know, we, it, it's been kind of shocking through the years to see the like lack of outrage subsequent to Hemp 1 and 2 in Hemp 3 and Hemp 4, where a lot of people said, well, you know, it kind of they're right, or whatever. I mean, when you hear people's opinions on things, just try to understand what their interest is, because that will guide their perception on it. Yes. That's another way of saying follow the money. Follow the money. And that'll that'll guide your understanding of people's opinions. But for for me, my interest is, you know, protecting industry and the plant and the folks that are working to have sustainable businesses and pushing hemp's use and broadening and expanding and growing the market. And not to mention honoring congressional intent. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so what we did was we filed a petition uh, for review of that rule. They didn't go, it's a, again, it's a legislative rule that they didn't go through notice and comment. And really what they're doing again is placing something on the schedule without a scheduling action. So, so if they issue a proposed rule after, you know, through notice and comment, it's still going to get challenged again. We did actually bring a, an action in. So, so the, that petition for a review was filed in the DC circuit. We, we also brought an action in, in the DC district court in an, in an attempt to um, strategically ferret the DEA out. We got some good counter arguments from them that we'll be using in our uh, briefing to the court. 
right now. And just so that our listeners know, because they sound so familiar and you didn't use the word appeals. So one was in D.C. District Court and one was in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. So so one was the petition for review of the rule was challenged in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. The assertion, DEA's assertion of jurisdiction was challenged in the D.C. District Court. And what DEA argued is, well, this is part and parcel of your challenge to the petition. And ultimately, the court agreed um, that's being appealed as well. But the bottom line is the DEA cannot get beyond the fact that they are trying to rewrite the law. And if they are trying to rewrite the law, there's a process for it that they have not gone through and are very far from it. So while uh, you know, we're, we're, we've got a ways to go before this is fully adjudicated, we've, we're feeling pretty solid about our position. Just, uh, you know, incredible stuff. And also just to fill in a couple of holes there for the listeners, essentially the farm bill, the 2018 farm bill said not only is hemp removed from the Controlled Substances Act, but tetrahydrocannabinols derived from hemp are also removed from the Controlled Substances Act. And then you even got the general counsel of the USDA putting forth a legal opinion saying, yep, we agree. Hemp and tetrahydrocannabinols derived from hemp have been removed from the Controlled Substances Act. And then you've got the DEA saying, yeah, uh, we're just putting forth this little innocent, you know, interpretive sort of rule here so we can let you know how the implementation is going is going to happen. With But it was IFR. Wasn't it? That's it. Was an IFR. wasn't an interpretive rule. It was an interim final rule. Yes. You're- yes. And so, and they say, and they say, so again, patting the U.S. Congress on its head and saying, mm, okay, so we we get that what you wanted to do really was to remove tetrahydrocannabinols derived from hemp from the Controlled Substances Act. But what you really meant was tetrahydrocannabinols not greater than 0.3% delta 9. And so that's how we're going to go ahead and, and interpret yes, because, that. Yes, be, because, sorry to interrupt, but because the DEA are the experts. They're, they're the experts. And who is Congress to be telling DEA how things ought to be done? Well, actually, Congress is who needs to be telling DEA how things ought to be done. I mean, the DEA can go about doing things on its own, but they've got to go through scheduling actions and they there's there's checks and balances that the legislature have placed their placed in their way or for them to abide by and who gets to be the arbiter of those conflicts? It's the courts. And thank God Amen. for the courts. Absolutely. And essentially what you're saying is DEA has to follow the law like all the rest of us. And, and this beautiful system that we do have in this country where we have these three branches of checks and balances. And over and over, we literally, between 2014 and 2018, I called it the executive branch versus the legislative branch time. And then it took the judicial branch through thank goodness, your leadership with HLG um, to bring this to the court 
to work it out, as you say, as you say, the arbiters. So, and is there anything else, by the way, that you want to mention about hemp four before we start talking a little bit about California, mister? Well, the, I guess the only thing, since you, since you brought up HLG, the one thing I would mention is that this, this year has been a year of transition. Um, HLG, Hoban Law Group, merged with Clark Hill. I uh, decided for my own reasons to bid farewell to HLG, as did some other folks. But I'm very grateful um, to Bob Hoban. I'm very grateful uh, for the opportunities that I had, and I look forward to ongoing continue, continued collaboration. But we all, together with several attorneys from Vicente Cedarberg and Rod Kite, we're all a part of this and we continue to be a part of it, whether we're with Hoban Law Group, Vicente Cedarberg or whomever, we're still a band fighting uh, the good fight. All right, segue, California. Um, so a little bit of background on, on, on that front is I grew up in a, a political family. My father was a state assemblyman in California from 74 to 84. So while I, I didn't grow up knowing a lot about the legislative process, I, I, I guess I learned it through osmosis for better or worse, or that's the way I would characterize it. But I got the bug, I got the bug somehow that 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 like I could actually make have influence, make an impact on things that again, for better or for worse. And um, I still don't know quite how much influence and impact I've been able to have. But, you know, I think we've seen a lot of change and that's been a good thing. Um, but after Hemp 1 and Hemp 2, uh, Vote Hemp uh, was was working on the reintroduction of the Hemp Farming Act in California as um, was being authored by then Assemblymember Mark Leno. And we, we went through um, eight years, three vetoes, to finally getting to a signature. But that signature was on a piece of legislation that was, quite frankly, in, in large respects, gobbledygook, because it was needing to deal with the federal prohibition, leaving, leaving it to... to federal action for it to get going and to deal with like a lot of the law enforcement lobby in, in the state and, and their influence on those three vetoes. And so it needed a lot of cleanup, needed a lot of cleanup. It got a little bit of cleanup in prop 64 in, in, in 2016, but we ran another piece of legislation, um, I think it was in, in, in 2017 that was further cleaning things up. We, we, we found a really good lobbying uh, group. I worked closely with uh, Will Clyden at Ojai Energetics. Eric Steenstra was a part of this. We brought in other folks. And we, so we ultimately, after running this, this bill and getting it signed into law, we decided that we were going to start, we needed to start something to create presence in Sacramento beyond the individuals. So we formed something called the California Hemp Council, which is, you know, it, it's industry funded from, you know, state, state companies, just, you know, what our future looks like is, you know, who, who, who exactly knows, but, but we've, we had a good run here um, over the past several years in starting to, shift our attention from production to manufacturing. 
And in, in July of 2018, the CDPH, our Department of Public Health, decided that it was going to issue an FAQ that, that parroted the FDA's prohibition, adulterant status of, of CBD and foods and dietary supplements. It didn't name cosmetics, mind you. But based on that, and, based, and, and we clearly disagreed with their position. Well, and they went so far as to say that really the only lawful place to, for the distribution of those products are in licensed marijuana dispensaries. That was the other piece to that. Am I right? Or if you want to go get Epidiolex. Yes, yes. Or an approved drug form. Yes, exactly. So, so we said, okay, well, um, if the FDA is not going to regulate it, and if CDPH is taking this position, that we need to mandate it. And the way we mandate it is through legislation. So we started that process um, in 2000 and with the two, in the 2019 legislative session. And we were rolling, baby. We were rolling through the committees without a, a, a vote against us. And then Lo and behold, at the end of the session, we and mind you, we went out and we formed a, a strong coalition, including marijuana um, industry, the CCIA, uh, the, the California Cannabis Industries Association, Caliva, um, a number of cannabis interests, met marijuana interests, were on board and, and aligned with this because part of what we were also trying to achieve was not only the legitimization and the regulation of hemp manufacturing, we wanted to create a pathway for hemp products into marijuana retail and as an ingredient input into the candy, into the marijuana manufacturing space. So what did it, what happened at the end of that session? Well, Southern California cannabis retailers and manufacturers and some manufacturers or, or Humboldt Growers Alliance, like they came out feeling threatened, uh, opposed the bill, basically acting as though they had some sanctified place where nobody could compete with them on anything to do with cannabinoids. And that, frankly, is an unacceptable position. Uh, we, I mean, hemp is a is an agricultural commodity it is not prohibited by the federal government like marijuana is it is distinct and different and no but no matter how often we said that we couldn't really get them to listen but but what they so what they their first issue was we want it tested like cannabis. We want it tested exactly like cannabis is. We have to do all this testing. You guys have to do it. And we conceded and said, okay, we will adopt. We will, we will, we will go for testing parity, but we will do it on our terms, not according to your protocols. You know, again, there's a reason why you're in the box. We're not in the box. But then that wasn't enough. Next turn to their attention to was capping THC uh, amounts in products. And what they wanted it to be capped at was less than one-tenth of a milligram of THC. And we fought that. We fought that. But what we, and, and they would use this example of, well, 
if you allow it at 0.3% and it goes into beverage products, then you're looking at a liter of water having 125 milligrams potentially of THC or whatever, some crazy astronomical stuff. And, and, and we just couldn't get them to say, well, you know, that's not going to happen. And even if it does, you're going to have the CBD counteracting the THC and all this different stuff. But what we ultimately like, like this process is the legislative process is, is, is about finding common ground. Where, 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 how can we strike compromises and accept those compromises for the good of progress? And so what we did was we, we, we posited and ultimately it became part of the, the legislation that final form hemp extract input needs to be less than 0.3% THC. And while they, that may not be a very elegant um, solution and, and, and not be liked by the industry, it was, it was something that was a lot better than this tenth of a milligram THC cap and something that we thought the industry could live with. Well, now they're going to have to. I mean, in a, in a sense, you, you know, with legislation, we, back in the day, we, we technology, California technology forced catalytic converters. I mean, legislation forces the development of technology, of activities to be better. And so therefore, the legislation is, is, is requiring that, that companies get better at refining and, 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 and limiting the THC. But last year, we, 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 we faced, you know, again, steamrolling through the committees, we faced late opposition coming from the hemp farming side. And it was because the administration put at the 11th hour a smoking, uh, a a smokable hemp product ban into uh, the legislation. And while we, while we, obviously that wasn't something that we agreed with, but the way it was drafted, it was really kind of ambiguous, vague and and you know we weren't we were not going to die on the vine and let this thing fail because of a, a perceived prohibition that we didn't think existed, but at the same time that we were gonna we were committed to continue to work on. At the end of the day, it didn't it didn't get passed. Um, and in fact, it was actually inner house squabbles that were occurring that stopped the passage. So fast forward to this year, everybody, the administration. Uh, Aguiar Curry, the the author, all of the you know coalition was was just was committed to getting it done. We you know third time's the charm. We've been through the pandemic. The, the we we've got to we've got to get this done. We've got to protect consumers. We've got to uh, force the CD the the Department of Public Health to begin to deal with and regulate this and not keep its head stuck in the sand. In a major way. And, 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 and just a, so familiar with this, because of course the California Hemp Council and the U.S. Hemp Brown Table, um, and I serve on that board, former executive vice president, and very much on the state lobbying committee fighting these fights, particularly this year. So, but at the, at the end of the day, the, the, the cannabis manufacturers were like, they got the union opposed and active and then and then um i think the american cancer association came out and opposed we were and and the the hemp farmers were all up in arms even though even though the the smoking prohibition was removed it was changed to an inhalable product so 
Does that include flour? I'm not so sure. It seems that it's open to interpretation, but that that those products will be allowed when there's a tax adopted and that there is there is a commitment next year to carry legislation that will apply a tax. And and that actually is is a positive because it, you know, there will be, you know, some reasonable tax on smoking products that will hopefully help to alleviate some of the tax burden on the marijuana side, which has really been challenging to dent the black market space. Um, But also inside of that is that any of these products can be sold from California outside of the state. So a lot of the perceived concerns with with the legislation are really nothing more than overblown smoke. Yes, and, and, and I have seen that. And, you know, normally it's true once a law passes, generally you have to have regulations to be written. That's not a shocker um, when that occurs and it, and it takes time. And I have just seen all, all kinds of different uh, reactions to it. And, and one thing I know for sure, and that is that we are absolutely want to 100% support farmers hemp you know i'm i'm i have stamps that i made in the early 90s that i still have you know i owned a hemp store in the mid 90s and they would say you know reinvigorate the family farm i mean this is about farmers so everybody wants uh for farmers to succeed absolutely and that's why i've been doing this little do they know that this is going to only open up opportunities for farmers. This legislation is opening up the floodgates for- It creates a legal pathway. It creates a legal pathway. The demand will be there. You know, they may not be getting ridiculous profits, but they're going to get sustainable profits. And just to put, you know, a final point on it, the legislation was signed by the governor on, I think it was October 8th. It has an urgency um, status. It goes into immediate effect. CBD hemp products are no longer an adulterant in the state of California. And uh, companies have 90 days to get compliant. And meanwhile, CDPH has 90 days to get some emergency rules issued so that folks can comply and know how to be compliant. But the legislation itself um, does does a good job of laying out um, a lot of the requirements, including the labeling, and that's really an important piece to anybody that um, is interested in benefiting. Any companies benefiting from this, um, make sure you do your labeling, and make sure if you're a manufacturer that you're looking at the rigs, you're getting licensed, registered, and licensed under the Sherman Act, and you are getting an becoming an authorized industrial hemp manufacturer. But at the moment, the pathway is being created. Absolutely. And and for those who don't know, the Sherman Act is basically California's state version of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. I think that's the most simplified terms that I can explain it. That's exactly how I, I would say it. But But what's interesting about it is that our Department of Public Health under the Sherman Act is really an extension of the FDA. So what have we just done? We have just compelled an extension of the FDA to regulate CBD. How that ultimately 
kicks the FDA in its ass to get its regulations going and adopted remains to be seen. Yep. No, it's true. And we shall see. Now, as we come to a close here, this is really a great segue. And of course, you and I, we're oil, seed and fiber people. And now, because it hit us like a ton of bricks and kind of blindsided most of us six to eight years ago. Yes, it's true. We're also hemp extract people. But the trillion dollar industries, the sustainable income for farmers, the sustainability and regeneration for the planet. It's in the trillion dollar industries of this plant, and that's oil, seed, and fiber. Um, so, and and as and and, and the herd most, and the insides of the of oh, the, you know, it's true. It, it's so interesting when I say fiber, I mean bast and herd. But you're a hundred percent right, brother. It, uh, there is that distinction being made. So the fiber, the the bast or the bark on the outside, and then of course that woody core, um, which I still refer to as fiber. But I am so glad you mentioned that. And and you know, again, that's where the economic and environmental sustainability is going to come. And that's where the trillions of dollars are going to come. Certainly hemp extract is a multi-billion dollar industry, but we're talking about trillions. Um, and so, and, and hemp extract often and CBD often takes up all the air in the room, et cetera, as it has done in this podcast in so many ways. But let's talk about, um, and, and I also want to say here that you know, we, obviously there was a massive overproduction. Julie Lerner, who I adore from Pan Exchange, she wrote this great op-ed a while back for Hemp Industry Daily that said, hope is not a strategy, so stop tolling. Um, you know, it takes a little bit of hemp to make a whole lot of distillate. So when I see new farmers um, coming in or existing farmers who instead of wanting to do, say, variety trials as they wait for infrastructure on fiber and grain, they're believing that they're going to make so much money on hemp extract varieties. I often say, do not pass go, do not collect $200, and please do not get into hemp extract farming if you have no experience um, and no contract. Um, it's constantly saying to folks, maybe this is the year of stand down and next year too, 2022. Because as we know, in order to deliver on the dream and the promise of hemp, we need infrastructure to process the longest, strongest stock in the world and that incredibly nutrient dense seed within, let's say, 50 to 100 square miles of every biomass feedstock. We don't have that. So I'm trying to encourage farmers to stand down, do some variety trials on grain and fiber types so that we can see in your climate, in your soil, in your photo period, what grows. Because when infrastructure comes to a town near you, you'll know. So let's talk about how can we incentivize, particularly California, the fourth or fifth, I think it fluctuates, largest economy in the world, um, to grow oilseed and fiber varieties, how do we get that done? Well, look, I mean, I, I think there are a number of potential avenues for that. I mean, one interesting um, piece is to make, you know, make it very clear that hemp can can avail the, the, the production of hemp avails carbon credits. If we can get carbon credits applied to it, then that's an incentive. Um, if we can um, create tax incentives for companies to be doing R&D, to be looking at energy production, to be looking at uh, uh, literal infrastructure, use of hemp in road making, other infrastructure capabilities, um, 
you know, I know that there's work already being done on uh, the nano, um, the side that's working with to replace graphene and graphite. Um, but it's, it's, you know, so often in California, we're hearing about like Tesla just left and, you know, companies leaving because uh, the cost of doing business here is, is so high. Well, California simultaneously has this, the, the, the climate act and, and it's always led environmentally. So what if we were to create these tax incentives for um, major businesses to get the R&D done and to start investing that in that into that capital, creating the infrastructure for truly addressing the issues. Look, the federal government is doing very little to effectively uh, combat climate change without, I mean, it, you know, it's working to overcome the past four years of serious ostrich acting head in the sand. Um, but the U S you know, in the past has, has led the way um, California leading the U S in, in pushing the planet. But California, like, like I said, mentioned earlier, we, we forced um, the catalytic converter. Why can't we force, and, and it doesn't need to just be hemp. It can be all of the, you know, plant-based, um, resources going into a, the global climate solutions. Um, what what are we doing? You know, and this may be getting outside of hemp in part. What what are we doing to sequester the carbon? Does hemp play a role in that? Yeah, it does. It, it, it it's it's pulling it it's pulling it out as it's growing. So. And locking it in, and let's not get started on hempcrete and carbon sequestration because of the lime. Oh my God! But bottom line, I think there there's plenty of opportunity for tax incentives, tax breaks, um, uh, technology forcing um, work to be done in Sacramento. And we're gonna like like I I often say is you know the sleeves are rolled up, they're gonna stay. <laughs> Amen. Oh my. And I dare you to try to pull them down. I dare you to try to yeah. pull them. I mean, I mean, they do, they do, but you know what, if there's one thing, joy, I've learned about this space, it's called resiliency in a major way. And I thank the plant for it because, you know, I saw it once a, a quote in print. And so I'm never going to actually do this quote again when I get, because it, it's kind of a cute thing that I used to say to reporters. And I used to say, man, I've tried to dump the hemp movement. It's impossible. Like I just wake up the next day. I want to slave for this plant again. Um, but that is the reality of it. It got up in my DNA many decades ago and it bosses me around every day. And I could not be more grateful for the joyful, fulfilling, rewarding work every day that it is working to deliver on the promise of this versatile, valuable plant. And Patrick Goggin, I am so grateful that you got bit by the hemp bug too. Yeah, well, you know, my brother, okay, so I was a, a history major at, at UC Santa Barbara, and I and I took this amazing class called The History of Wilderness and Civilization, and it changed my life. It got me back to who I originally was, and that was somebody who really cared about the water I drink, the water I swim in, the air I breathe, and 
the plants and critters around me. And I was ripe for when my brother delivered to me as a birthday present, The Emperor Wears No Clothes, probably in one of its early print editions. And, and that led to me, after my first year of law school, I was up in Portland at Lewis and Clark, getting really moldy as hell. I came back to California. I, I, my, my mood lifted. And I went to this concert. It was called Laguna Seca Days. Um, and that was the moment at which I saw the plants. I saw the plants in the field. This was 1993. And, and I was preaching from the soapbox at Laguna Seca Days. And, and I was like, can't you see those plants? They're coming. Little did I know it was going to take 30 something years. But again, coming back to this, these lessons in life and experience of, of facing defeat and dealing with loss and dealing with defeat. You know, we have to retreat. We have to feel it. We have to, we have to process it. We have to grieve. But God damn it, we got to get back on the horse. And we will not stop until we're relaxing and we are drinking our plant-based beverage from a biocompostable plant-based cup and we're going that will be able to thoughtfully discard and know that it's going to go away. We are going to remove plastics from the uh, petrol-based plastics from our existence. We have to if we don't, we're going to choke on our plastic as the animals are doing. We got to get, I mean, I mean that, that, that's why I get so tired of the bickering over people's self-interest and profits while the planet and the animals and the plants are dying. We're the stewards. We're responsible. 110%. And after all of the momentum that we made, I will not be dying on the hill of synthetically converted Delta 8 <laughs> so someone can get intoxicated when we've got to do all of this, this work. And, and again, it, and it's a constant as the free market and as science catches up with the law, we've, we've got to continually monitor and, and modify and, and, and adjust here. But 110%. Um, those those selfish special interests really need to and and it's shocking to me where it comes from because we used to be able to smell them coming a mile away and now they're sort of like if fox is in the hen house uh, but but that's what we do that's that's uh, what we do we continue to be the steward and to to be the voice of the plant I I often speak in the first person and someone will say what did you say oh I'm sorry I wasn't talking about me I was talking about hemp I know but you said I and you said we well I was speaking on behalf of the plant sorry <laughs> they call that pantheism ah thank you okay apparently I, I practice pantheism occasionally my gosh Brother, I am so grateful for everything that you are, everything that you do. I am so grateful for your conviction, uh, your sense of conviction, your sense of duty and obligation. You are a personal hero of mine and a hero to the planet and a hero to the farmers and the hemp industry. Patrick, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Joy. Thank you. I mean, th those, those words um, are helping me to melt and but feel really good. Um, and I'm and I'm honored to be on this path. Oh, 
Brother, thank you. Until next time, I'm wishing you everything wonderful. Power to the people. Power to the people. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, it's Justin Benton, host of the Miracle Plant Podcast, where we discuss this miracle plant that goes by so many names and how it's helping people in so many extraordinary ways. So if you love this plant and you want to hear a story that tugs on those heartstrings and learn more about this plant, then head on over to the Miracle Plant Podcast. You'll be glad you did.